We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. We've just done a study recently that, that proves that if you give free school lunches to vulnerable and poor families, that it doesn't cost the state money because over a 10-year period, it makes billions through productivity and how that a productivity of that child and how they well they do at school. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I have two classic conversations with two folks I really respect in the food media game, Allison Roman and Jamie Oliver. I hope you enjoy these conversations. You know what? We were just talking about off mic about doing like a drum circle with the with the table. Yeah, man. And then we were talking about Cool Britannia. And yeah. We were talking about the Stone Roses. Yeah. Now we were. Does anyone in the U.S. know the Stone Roses? No. No. I, I mean that with 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 sadness. I yeah. think right now we have a little bit of a '90s revival here. Yeah. But it's more of our stuff than their stuff. I mean, Blur, I think, and Oasis. I guess the comparison would have been like around the time Nirvana broke. There would have been yep. a myriad of bands in that vein and that energy. Yeah. And Stone Roses were kind of, I guess, our version of Nirvana, but just weren't as kind of rocky and commercial and kind of went so global. But Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, look, that, that having those moments of a scene. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so when I was like 17 uh, to 23, like, it, yeah, Cool Britannia, there was a lot of cool stuff going on. Great bands, great art, like supermodels and kind of oh like my gosh. art scenes and everyone was partying in London and and the big cities around the country. Yeah, Alex James from Blur, a friend of yours, yes. writes in his – have you read his memoir? No. It's, it's really good. good. One thing I've never told him, um, <laughs> and he's a friend. Yeah. Um, he doesn't know this, but he chatted up my wife in, in, in Tokyo years ago. So he writes about... Before he was married. Yeah. Before right. I was married. Huh. He writes about Tokyo with... Yeah, I bet he did. <laughs> well, did it say anything about a, a, a brunette? Tall brunette? Yeah. He, he had, <laughs> called Jules. He, he talked about... No, he, he talked about Tokyo being like enchanted with the city, but I mean, the guy was on every pill of manageable and writes about that. Mm. In, 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 have you been to Japan? I have. Yeah. I, have you been to a gig in Japan? Um, I have. Yeah. Let's talk about this. Okay. Have you? Americans and Brits wouldn't understand this. I know. So 60,000 people, 40,000 people, whatever, 1,000 people, it's the most orderly, queuing, silent sort of, uh, you know, movement of people into a gig venue. They are so polite. And you think, well, this is going to be terrible. Yeah, you think it's going to be dead. The second the first chord is played, they go ballistic. Jumping up in unison. Wild animals. Nutters. I I thought it was an incredible moment. I saw Weezer there in 1999, and I I saw exactly what you said, orderly, and then Pogo. Yeah, mad. What was your gig? I I, I can't remember. I think it was, um, oh, oh God, it was... um, it was a bunch of like rap acts from the UK that I mm. hadn't heard of, but they were good. Mm. And um, there was um, 
a great band. What was it? Deeper Underground. Um, mm-hmm. Deep Man Down, Deep Underground. Deep, oh, the Sneaker Pimps? Yes. Yeah, Six yeah, yeah. Underground. Sneaker Pimps, yeah, yeah. That one. Yeah. Um, sneaker Pimps. Sneaker Pimps were wicked. And, um, yeah. But like, and then, and it was utter chaos for the whole period of the gig. And then the minute it's finished, yeah. orderly, quiet. Okay. I mean, in the UK, there's normally a few fights. <laughs> you know, there's like food getting thrown everywhere. There's someone sick in the corner, left, right and centre. But this this was, I've never seen anything. So, so tell me about backstage at Wembley. You probably have seen some things. I feel like the VIP situation at some of these big, massive shows is pretty fun. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I mean, over the years, I've, I've done it quite a few times yeah. in award ceremonies and bits sure. and pieces. Um, I always like it when the Americans come in, like Eminem. With like you know, yeah. thirty crew, yeah, and uh, and it's, it's like I think is if you if you're if you're kind of like if you've got enough drama, like you can pull it off, yeah, like yeah. he can pull it off, it's fine, like yeah. he can do whatever. But he you, likes. I mean, Kate Moss had probably had forty though back in the day. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I didn't actually. I, <laughs> I have seen her uh, 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 in the backstage for gig, but I can't talk about it. No, no, you can't. <laughs> um, all right. So our last interview, thank you for coming back. I love this tradition. Thank Let's you. keep doing this because I really do appreciate you stopping by. You talked about, we didn't get into it, but you grew up in a pub. You grew yes. up in a pub. So I want to know, um, and you talked about people fascinating you, and that was the moment when you realized that people fascinate you. Who, who are some of these people when you're growing Just up Just really pub? regular folks. I mean, I think... Um, you don't really have pubs in the US, and I, th- I think that's a great loss. Actually, yeah. um, it's not a bar, and I mean, a sort of a really good local dive bar would be the closest to it. Yeah, but I mean, the vibe in pubs is slightly different because, like, I grew up above a pub. I lived in a pub, mm. and to put that into perspective, it was a 16th century building yeah old hall house like, mm-hmm. like low beams because mm-hmm. like back in people forget like before america was even created as we know it like like we we were we had scurvy we had mm-hmm. we were malnourished we were small so like the doors in these buildings are <laughs> small like the ceiling like you hit your head yeah um but the great thing about a pub is everyone's welcome and that's uniquely unusual mm-hmm. like where everyone's welcome so you could have someone that's a millionaire next yeah. to uh you know a romany traveler Mm-hmm. And that was my reality. And you equalize over a shared, um, a bitter and yeah. some some food? Yeah. Uh, beers, bitter, um, um, spirits, uh, roaring fire, yeah. simple foods. My dad, I didn't know it at the time, but my dad was actually one of the early pioneers of what became known as gastropub. Yeah. So that is a pub with all of its charm and, and the rainbows of people that go there, um, but really good food. But really good food. Local like, food. Your dad's your dad's a chef. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what were some of the dishes? Let me just get into that early on when, when you're talking about crystallizing this gastropub movement, which, you know, April Bloomfield, all these people in America have, have brought to our country. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously contemporary is a moving target and, yeah, and sure is stagnant. So my dad, who was a chef and, and worked in France and then took over the pub, so he he thought and probably was contemporary. So he was doing, like, classic French dishes, so, um, like, using local produce to make sort of, like, you know, um, uh, coq van, beef mm-hmm. bourguignon, but then British pies, like, beautiful hot water pastries. Yeah. You know, um, and all the desserts. So very Germanic, Swiss, French, Italian desserts, all made on site. Meringues, ice creams, pastries. I thought that was normal. And, and I know you know that that isn't normal. Even to this day, that's not normal no, for a pub no. to have a, a seven chefs in the kitchen, um, a pastry chef, um, whole deer, local deer shot, um, 
pheasant partridge, yeah. uh, rabbit's hair, of course, chicken and steaks, as you'd expect, mm-hmm. steak nights, um, whole pigs getting broken down, butchered, fish day on a, on a, on a Tuesday and a Thursday, crabs, lobsters. Wow. Um, so you would, you would serve a dish that would be, you know, like a kind of bistro-style dish, you know, sort of 10 $15, I guess. You know, you'd, wow, you'd have, only $10, $15. Yeah, you'd have stuff like in comparison to yeah, translating yeah, it yeah. about that. But also you'd stretch the menu with your, you know, beautiful steaks uh, and where you put a bit of effort in and sort of go double them. Mm-hmm. So it's quite nice. that you, I, I like I like the fact that the building welcomes all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that anyone from any religion, ethnicity, um, um, financial background, background is welcome. But also the food did the same. Yeah. So you had really humble, like, Super humble, well-made sandwiches, you know, with a portion of chips. I mean, like, who doesn't love that? No. Um, but the, the bread would be baked on site. Um, but then you've kind of got pit crab, you know, with little potato salads and and, and sort of clever little... Kind Real of, luxury types yeah, of Yeah, homemade mayonnaises and bits and pieces like that. So yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was really lucky to grow up in that. And like Have we I, lost our way? Are we finding restaurants like this now? I mean, I feel margins now are worse than ever. I mean, when you were growing up... You could make a living as a restaurateur. Now it's not really as viable. Yeah, I think one of the problems is, um, and look, the, the Americans are the masters of fast food, right? So fast, sorry about that. No, listen. I mean, I, I think it's um, it's human nature to find really good, affordable, uh, scalable ways of doing anything, mm-hmm. let alone food. So I get that. I think where. This is just my opinion, but where government, uh, local or national, has this power is you can't compare a gastro pub or a local restaurant that takes on young kids and trains them and teaches them how to fillet fish and to mm-hmm. bone um, butcher meat and to marinate and to, to grill on site and to pick salads and wash it and make dressings. Like, how can you how can you tax? And treat that business the same as something where everything comes out of a packet and it, it's very ambient and it never goes off and 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 it's 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 they're very mm. robust, sort of less vulnerable businesses. They don't, I mean, they employ people, yeah, yeah tick, but they don't train anyone to a sort of. And look, so you might say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is culture, yeah, because anyone doing the first, any local restaurant in this country or any country, is essentially amplifying what it is to be American or a New Yorker mm-hmm. by buying local gear. Yeah, and by and training the, the, the staff to actually cook in a way that has a tradition, that yeah. has a, a, an origin. Yeah. But, right? but putting a value on that is – so So that's called culture. Right. So you sort of look at Italy and you look at how tricky their economy has been and their prime ministers over the years and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. But the, their culture's thick as treacle. Like it's yep. thick. It's like cement. Um, so, um, and of course America deserves that. And, and I've spent a lot of time traveling this country. I've done whole cooking series yeah. around this country. Like Exciting. You went to public schools. Under the skin of it. I um, loved it. I loved gangsters that. in LA and getting <laughs> into sort of like Mexican, yeah. Puerto Rican, like, yeah. uh, um, uh, and actually when you, what I learned about American cooking is, is it's a metaphor for the world. Just Interesting. It's 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 creation is mm. a celebration and a metaphor mm. for the world. So I, you know, even when I lived in Huntington, West Virginia, um, which at that time was the most unhealthy time in, uh, town in America, um, based on the CDC report. Um, uh, after about two weeks, I'm looking at like little illustrations and pictures on public buildings, and I'm like, "Are there a lot of Scottish people here?" Mm. And they're like, "No, no, 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 no." Are there a lot of Germans here? No, 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 no. 
And then I, I kept asking, like probably being annoying. And then like basically a couple of weeks later, you started finding out all of these people you built relationships with, their grandparents oh. were German or Scottish. And then you start things, okay, let's start to, and then you start realizing that yeah. there's like amazing pie work in this little area. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, sort of, regional American cuisine is, is definitely informed by Western European culture and it, we, our traditions are grand. Jamie, I want to go back to something you said earlier about what we pay for food. And I think when you're talking about Italian culture is is rock solid. I think what you're saying in my interpretation is that Italians pay more for food than Americans. It's a topic we talk about a lot on our show. How do we get people to pay more for food right now? Um, I can I redress the question? Sure, let's read. Um, how do we get people to cook? Yeah, yeah, is the real question. Um, I you know I think if you can cook, whether you're rich or poor, you have the capacity to live a very beautiful, civilized, um, rich life full of moments surrounded by people you love uh, and deliciousness. And the most exciting food I've ever eaten on the planet, and let's just refer to Italy because we're talking about it, and they're very good at it, um, has never been about riches. Mm. It's never been about foie gras and fillet steaks. No, 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 no. They're, they're, they're a gnarly, clever, mm. very agile, bendy, flexible community of people mm. look what italians have done around the world right uh, there is of course other cultures you know exciting as well but the, the italians is something i know quite well um and cucina povera or poor people's cooking mm. again that's well which lens are you looking at it oh mm -hmm. that's you know that's um something with five ingredients or you know just a vegetarian mm. dish that's delicious with past like I, i've been with nonnas mm -hmm. um in their hundreds and her version of cucina povera was boiled pasta. Mm. That's dinner. Yeah. If she was lucky, a swig of olive oil. And if she was very, very lucky, maybe a grating of pecorino or parmesan. Mm -hmm. And in the summer, maybe some chopped tomato. That was it. And and again, for context, because it's really important that we reference what bad is. And I mean, there's bad now and bad then, but mm -hmm. gratitude yeah. has a really important place to part in food and our culture. Um she didn't have a pair of shoes until she was 13. Her first pair of shoes, mm -hmm. 13. So um, was that common in that part of Italy? Yes. Um, is it common now? No, like we've moved on. But I think, uh, I mean, this idea that science and technology or a brand or a fast food mechanism or supply chain is going to fix your, 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 your poverty yeah. or your struggles when it comes to the pound, uh, I, I would say probably best not to. Um, and actually looking back... If you can cook, you have freedom. If you if you can cook 10 recipes... See, look, if I had a magic wand, I would wish that every American child at 16 that leaves school, if they choose to leave, could cook. Couldn't leave unless they can cook 10 recipes to save their life. And you could structure those. Those 10 recipes could be like, you know, it could be how to make a, a really good soup. Out, mm. of, out of anything, mm -hmm. like a really good stew. And, of course, that takes in chilies and curries and cool stuff like that. You know, like, you know, how to make veggies taste good. Like, mm -hmm. like you could do it in 10 recipes. And the basics of budgeting. So after... It's the important point there. Budgeting is super important because I think right now, um, when you talk about learning those 10 recipes, we don't, as a culture, understand what you actually have to buy. Yeah. And it gets to be daunting for home cooks to kind of climb that mountain of, of, of all the shopping, all the expense that goes into it. And well, let's put that into context. Mm -hmm. After your mortgage of your home, yeah. the, generally speaking in this country, the second biggest outgoing 
is food. I wish you were right, but I don't think so. Americans spend between 8 and 11% of their annual income on food. I think in the UK it's more. Even 8% is a, is a, is a, is a shitload of money. Yeah, true, true. So it's being, um, being resourceful with that cash and knowing how to make it stretch, waste, yeah. waste less, cheaper cuts of meat. You know, some of my favorite cuts of beef, for instance, aren't like the fillet and the sirloin, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and like that idea that kind of like knowing your five, ten miles where you live and like knowing yep. every food business in that so you can duck yep. and dive. But also um, those suppliers, if you can build a relationship, they want you for life. Yeah. So sometimes you can go, I've only got $5 or $10. Like, what can I get for that? Mm-hmm. And, and they'll, they'll work something out because it's not about the day. It's about... How do we get having... these 10 to 12 recipes into a curriculum in the public school? How do we, how I, do, we do that? I because... think it should be law. I honestly think... I think yeah. it's... A, I actually think if you look at, like, public health statistics in the UK or the US, uh, and if you look at the trajectory of of unhealthy kids that leave school and how that goes into their productivity and mm-hmm. how long they live and, and when they die and the cost, you know, because of, you know, absenteeism from work and all that sort of stuff, um, I think it's a kind of human right to learn mm-hmm. how to nourish yourself. Yeah. So I think school's the perfect place. Yeah. Oh my God, school's the perfect place to learn 10 recipes. Yeah, putting it and quantifying Science, it the way... history. Yeah, and then budgeting, food. Budgeting, math. There's no better way to learn yeah. maths than baking. You know, there's no better way to learn yeah. history than food, whether it's American history or, or ancestral history of the founders of America. So I, I think... Um, but again, kind of going back to that thing about treating a proper restaurant the same as a fast food joint mm-hmm. from, from a business tax point of view. And why is that important? Because you want there to be lots more small neighbourhood restaurants that are interesting. Yeah. Why? Because that's cultural richness mm-hmm. of that, that postcode, that area. That, you know what I mean? That's yeah. that. So if you lose that, then you just end up with fast food and that's it. Yeah, and, and I know you know that's not it. Like, there's so much interesting stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, I so. mean, the fast food lobby is strong here in the U.S., and I think unfortunately the tax subsidies are not going to go to the local government, uh, the local restaurants, but more the uh, the big conglomerates. It's the way our system is rigged. Um, it's disappointing, and I agree with you to to get, offer some kind of incentive for the small restaurants to stay open with tax breaks or well, I think it's just, government. It, yeah, I just think if if you want that next generation of cooks, like proper cooks. Um, they have to come from somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, yes, there's colleges and stuff where you can learn, but that, that that's not really where they're kind of, they're, they're, they're not truly given birth to then. They find their inspiration with inspirational leaders and people that are genius and local and yeah. and doing 14, 16 hours a day sort of like caring mm-hmm. and building relationships with amazing. I mean, you've got incredible farmers in America, yeah. you know. I mean, it's a real dichotomy, isn't it? Some of the worst and some of the very best on the planet is here. Yeah, it's all, it's it all, is true. all for the taking. I have to ask you, on the topic of taxes, you have promoted the sugar tax. Mm-hmm. You've talked uh, positively about the sugar tax. We, uh, in New York City, uh, our former mayor, Michael Bloomberg, two mayors ago, yeah. attempted to to promote a sugar tax, shut down. Um, it's a controversial topic, but I would mm. like to get your take on the sugar tax. How does that work? So Bloomberg was right. He was kind of a pioneer. He yeah. was, it, probably with my experience, I would say he was about 18 months too early. Yep. If he'd have done it 18 months later, like the world would be a little bit different and accepted it. When I, I did a documentary and I drove a campaign and we achieved it, um, so we have a sugary drinks tax in the UK. Mm-hmm. To put that in context, like, 
of course, I understand that people don't like tax, but let me just explain this. So first of all, we gave birth to it as a tax for good. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's really simple. Where's the target? The target was sugary sweetened drinks, the single biggest source of sugar in all of our kids' diet. Same here, same in the UK. So we have a target. So we're going to tax that. And we're taxing it to get reformulation because we've been asking them for 20 years, just like here, and they don't do it because voluntary doesn't work. No. So we put them on the naughty step. We gave them a tax. <laughs> Britain had the fastest reformulation of sugary sweetened drinks on the planet ever. Millions and millions of tons of empty, wasted, useless calories were taken out of the Reformulation UK. doesn't mean sugar alternatives, though, right? It can mean anything. So lower the sugar, uh, you, you know, use sucralose or, you know, uh, uh, you know, natural sweeteners, unnatural sweeteners. It, it's not perfect, but it's much better So yeah. in the equation. But basically what it created was about 400 million pounds of tax that was only given to British primary schools for breakfast clubs and sports clubs. Mm. So there was a good benefit. So to they the reinvested the tax into... Yeah. It was the first new money in yeah. schools for, for, for a decade yeah. uh, that wasn't budgeted for. Um, but most importantly, it did what it should have done, which was reformulate the whole industry. Now, let me give you another little thing that's interesting because the kind of capitalist business people who thought I was the enemy. Um, Many people thought you're the enemy. And yeah, yeah. This is, this is one of the largest lobbies in government is the sugar industry. Yeah. I mean, they're massive. They're very, very short-sighted. Yes. Um, and, they, and, and, and what they don't like with all their might and intelligence and, and money is they don't like change. Because of what we did in the UK, because they reformulated, they also researched and developed more drinks offers, more fruit offers, more dairy offers, more water offers. So the industry became wider, healthier, and therefore more sustainable. The businesses were more sustainable. And guess what? They took more money. Yeah. And the CEOs got bigger bonuses because they took more money, right? So ironically, I was the enemy. But we reformulated sugar, got rid of a load of empty rubbish, the industry structurally as product, the portfolio of products across the whole industry is way more um, varied, aka more choice. choice. Yeah, and marketed. Cho choice is democracy, right? Choice is good and, and probably marketed better. I mean, you, when you can market healthier for good or for bad, I mean, the net positive is there. Nope, these empty calories are gone. They're going to make money. I mean, alter, these all, all drinks are a massive industry. Listen, if you, drinks. anyone listening here will be like, like if you just ask people cutely, oh, can you just do this, please? No, they're not. Mm -mm. People hate change. But I do think the jobs of scientists and, and, and public health experts and people that map patterns of um, really bad ill health across our parents and kids, you know, they can follow the patterns of, you know, why one of the biggest reasons for kids getting put under a general anaesthetic is multiple teeth extraction. And that's not one or two. We're talking seven to everything mm -hmm. out. You know, um, and uh, so so we, we can we can look at how kids are just getting bigger and less healthy, and they're dying younger yeah. as adults. So I think that's that's where you should have faith in legislation. You should have faith in public health laws. I mean, these are the same laws, by the way, that check the rivets on your plane that you. Fly yeah, in and 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 Jimmy, are you are you ever going to? to be there asking the questions to the prime minister? Are you going to be in parliament? 
no, I, I don't know if I could. I, 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 I think I would be too street fighter for them. Isn't um, that isn't I, that looked think, upon as a positive trait in some parts of the UK? I, I haven't been asked to go into to politics, but I mean, I've been through five prime ministers and thirteen <laughs> education secretaries in in the last fifteen years. Yeah, um, and I, I feel. I mean, definitely at the age of forty-seven, I feel like I'm getting wiser, yeah. and. I know that it's within all of our human nature not to like busybodies, but I swear to you I'm not a busybody. I would much rather be doing other stuff, but because I'm in my job and I have the position that I have and because I'm yeah. exposed to the things I'm exposed to, and that's real people, real communities, sort of things happening with communities like skin on skin, like mm-hmm. where they're really making change, you know, everything from... Um, you know, food banks, this, that, and the other. We have programs where we teach people in the, in the community 10 recipes to save your life. Yeah. When you say you have faith, though, it makes me just think that is the mindset that we need in government. I have faith in, I think the public are really busy and they're trying to be the best they can be. And And other than all the miscommunications that are going on, I think the public would appreciate governments to have access to the best minds on the planet, Yeah, which they do. And then exercise that logically to protect first of all kids mm-hmm. and then us and and the, but like i said these are the same laws that make you wear a seatbelt and then when they make you wear a seatbelt well what kind of seatbelt made out of what what's the regs mm-hmm. like there's nothing wrong with having high expectations for yeah. us to be safer i agree is there another laser focused um element in our food culture that needs reform i mean the sugar tax you obviously directionally were so on point. Yeah. Well, yeah What's I, the next one? I mean, there's so many. I know. I, I mean, know. Our, our relationship, I mean, I think like sprays and pesticides is a really big, obvious one. There's yeah. hundreds that are banned in Europe that are used every day here in the States. And there's various reasons from that, you know, respiratory diseases, you know, connections with, you mm-hmm. know, all kinds of disorders and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. how and when you can spray them next to you know, outside fields next to schools and, you know, like there's like there's how, you know, even if you look at the school food system, the commodity system. Yeah. And, you know, certainly when I was working in Huntington, I think there was um, in a five day week, you had to get rid of 11 grains. So you're worried about childhood obesity and you've got 11 grain dishes getting served in five days. Yeah. And like there was no cap on sugar. No. And and, um, like it's almost designed... Certainly then it was designed to fail. So I, I think look, there's, you know, I I always think in the UK we need to have like a ministry of food. Yeah. Uh, we haven't. Yeah. We, we uh, used to in the war, yeah. actually. And by the way, just for, re- and by the way, just for reference, um, Britain was at its most healthiest about five years after the war. That, mm-hmm. that was like, like we were in good nick. Mm-hmm. So all of our terrible graphs have really come from that moment. Yeah. That moment. Once, I mean, once the... But I think you should have a Ministry of Food here that has some yeah. clout. Yeah, our, our agricultural department has is, is over overburdened and there's a lot of yeah, issues. Yeah, look, I think, I, th- I think, again, it's like, it's not like I'm a hippie. I'm not walking no. around burning sage. I don't think so. Saying, like, listen, you know... You're not you a should big all be smudger. Eating, like, eat lentils all day, you lot. Like, I, I think, you know, I, I believe in mixed farming um, yeah. and I believe in farmers and, and you already... The, you certainly don't need me to help. Like all the answers are here in America. Like you have some of the best practice in farming in the world yeah. in America, but the system, it favors no change. Yeah. And there's actually no good reason for that because 
everything changes and and it needs to change because we're changing the environment's changing um i mean our farm bill is changing that's really what it comes down to the farm bill is always up for debate and i think that's what's causing um a lot of problems that we that you're that the root of a lot of our problems is that farm bill being tossed between administrations and tossed between power from the right and left i want to ask you you are the second most best-selling author in the uk i think you've sold 50 million copies of your books second to jk rowling so that's a lot of books. I got to yeah. ask you, what drives you to write more? I mean, we've had two in two years, and I I respect the tenacity when it comes to yeah, publishing. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things really. I mean, obviously, it pays the bills. Um, I I get uh, a pound twenty for every book I sell. Uh, so I think you make so, a little more than me, just yeah. a little more. But like that's about right for um, us. <laughs> it, it can be less. Um, <laughs> can. But just for context for the listeners, like it, it's. Being an author is not necessarily an easy way to make a living, right? No. Uh, like a pound 20 or a pound or, or yeah. do, let's say a dollar a book. No, I, I mean... Um, yeah, yeah. Like you've got to sell a lot of books to make a living. Yes. Um, and it's really hard selling books. I mean, I somehow, I, I don't know, I've been able to resonate with not just my own community in Britain, yeah. but, you know, uh, many countries around the world. Uh, translated, I think, 55 times. Mm-hmm. I think we're in like 86 countries or something like that. Um and I've been published here for nearly 20 years or so. Yeah. Um, I, I keep doing it because I enjoy it. I love it. I keep doing it because the customer's changing a lot. So when I started book one, Naked Chef, the average time spent cooking in the UK was 46 minutes. Now, well, the last survey, the same survey was done before COVID. It was 21 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I think post-COVID, there's been a lot more kind of like digitization of apps, food delivery and and, mm-hmm. and and phone and faux payment. So I think we're probably down at 19 minutes. I know for a fact from basket data in the US and the UK that we're cooking less now than we were before COVID, which was already at a low. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm kind of, it, I'm a, I feel like I'm a rare breed farmer. Do you know what I mean? I'm trying mm-hmm. to keep, I, I'm trying, I generally, I, I'm trying to find, like if you look at One Pound Wonders, like that's mm-hmm. the low washing up, minimum washing up cookbook. Mm-hmm. That appeals to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and another book that I wrote was Five Ingredients, like small amounts of ingredients, right? So that appeals to a lot of modern day people because they're frightened and they haven't necessarily learned or mm-hmm. most likely haven't learned to cook at home. And they probably haven't learned at school either. So they're nervous. So do I buy that that I know is good or do I risk it and try having a go at something that I have never... So it's very ner- it's an emotional, nerve-wracking thing for people. So I feel like... I'm still needed. I feel yeah. like I still enjoy it. Um, and then last but not least, like I I think like at school I did really badly. So <laughs> at school I did really badly. I flunked just about everything and I really struggled with reading and writing when I was a kid. I had dyslexia. So I think the fact that I'm the second biggest author in the UK makes me chuckle. Yeah. It makes me giggle. But more than anything, it kind of makes me hopeful for all the other kids that struggle because like if um, honestly if they can't find any kind of inspiration in me being able to pull it off then do you know what i mean yeah no and if i can do it then that that should mean for all those kids that struggle at school they just need to solve problems differently they just need to have the confidence to kind of is that what drives your interest in public education is your struggles as as a child like you empathize with our school system yeah i think like I am the kid that resented school so much when I left. Yeah. I hated it. I hated black and white. It was the enemy. I hated the institution of it, like, because it made me feel small and uh, embarrassed. 
And like, I'm not getting the violin out. I'm just saying, like, you know, that 16-year-old no. kid that left. Like, I'd spent five years getting pulled out of school, going to special needs classes. That's what it was called. Like, it's, like, it's, it's quite embarrassing. Yeah. So I think anything that singles you out at school is probably not sympathetic contemporary education. I think education's got, like... You know, a lot of what we do, certainly in Britain, I can't comment on, on America, but I've seen a fair bit over here. But certainly in Britain, like a lot of what we do still is like what a, bun- a bunch of monks and vicars like organized like a few hundred years ago. Like, come on. Like, yeah. so um, we've seen in the Harry Potter movies. Yeah. I mean, yeah, look, if, you look, if you look at what's hurting, yeah, what's hurting young adults, ex-students is debt. They can't manage money yeah. and ill health, mm-hmm. diet related disease, cooking, like environment. You know, they don't, you know, we need to get kids in both our countries closer to the, the mud, yeah. the filth, um, get them just to cook a handful of dishes just so they have choice. Yeah, back to the It's not even something recipes. you have to cook. It's like... Back to the 12. Because it's interesting. When, when you see people that can cook challenged hard with budget and money problems, like we're reading about all the time now, mm-hmm. and then if you look in the eyes of someone with the same challenges that can't cook, that family is in chaos. Mm-hmm. Honestly, so so being able to cook a small amount of things is freedom. It's choices. It's it's a kind of tenderness and a kind of anchor to a home. Um, and and I am being romantic now. Yeah, a little and, bit. And it deserves. I to like be. it though. I, like I mean, it. I've I, I've I've witnessed so many very poor families cooking extraordinary food, having one wonderful wonderful meals. Mm-hmm. Um, clever cooking with a handful of simple ingredients all around the world and it's been a joy and that's what definitely makes me get up in the morning and want to learn mm-hmm. to cook more your stuff. newest book one simple one pan wonders uh i wanted to ask you a few questions about the recipes mm. um you talk about frying pan pasta are you about pasta water how do you cook with pasta water i think it's without com- it or with or without it do you throw the pasta water into the pan yeah so boiling water, so you work on that sauce first in one pan. Yeah. And then you use fresh pasta, which is completely untraditional. Yeah. Um, and and then, you know, like just water goes in on top and you bring it to the boil, season it up, get the right consistency and serve it. Um, why is that an interesting one? I think like because you can get fresh pasta in all the supermarkets mm-hmm. and because the time that people are willing to give now, if you look through that chapter, you're going to see color, texture, yep. form, like there's some really nice combinations. Yeah. They're all about eight to 12 minutes to cook. And you can cook one to two portions in a pan, one thing to wash up. Um, so, I mean, interestingly, it wouldn't take me long to look into Italian history to to find another equivalent of, well, how do how did Italians address that problem, yeah. this problem 100 years ago, 300 years ago? So, um, you know, the Italians are very clever. And I think... Um, that became a, that wasn't supposed to be a chapter. I just did one, and I'm like, damn, why have I not done that before? And I did it again and again. I'm like, right, that's a chapter because I can. Yeah, you just, you just know it's going to go viral. Yeah, and um, and then like you know we we got there's like loads of stuff to do with. Like, I I really looked the pantry of ingredients that I worked from are the things that I know most mm-hmm. people buy most weeks. Salmon salmon steaks, like chicken legs. You know, um, trying to actively give you good excuses to get more of the good stuff in you. So in my books, like, I celebrate everything, but really, you know, veggie, vegan, meat, fish, breakfast, lunch, dinner, desserts. Like, I'm trying to sort of 
before I even write one, one recipe, I kind of design the structure, which I know sounds a bit, I don't do this all the time, but for this particular, I wanted this book to be the most user-friendly cookbook I'd ever written. Well, the way it's directed, the art direction too, is you're showing all the mise en place, you're showing the ingredients, which yeah. is um, not common. I think it's a more difficult direction yeah. to do that. And you're People like, love to see, you know, what they're doing and like yeah. kind of cook by numbers and, you know, whether it's kind of like when you made your first Lego or, yeah. you know, any kind, <laughs> any kind of comparable thing where you've got yeah. a, little, a little manual and it's, and, and ultimately it's like a little Tom Tom or ways, you know, it's getting from A to Z and you want to get to A to Z, yeah. you know, when you get in a cab and they take you the long way and you're like, no, 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 dude, you go that. <laughs> like, so that's my job's to sort of navigate you in the less, least friction mm-hmm. as possible. Cause here's the thing, right? This is the way I look at it anyway. Like, if you write a recipe, let's say you write a recipe that's good. It's a nice title. It's a nice concept. Let's say the recipe's rubbish. It's, yeah. it's badly written. does not work. Yeah. Um, someone's going to go out, spend some money. They're going to cook it. They're not going to get A to Z in a straight line. They're going to be stressed. And then they might not like it. And if mm-hmm. it doesn't work, which the, the probability is higher, then they might not ever cook again for a long time. So just for context... Bearing in mind that most people don't cook anymore, and it probably hasn't been worse than now. Yeah. Um, I need people to start and finish something, and I call them safe, non-vulnerable recipes. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm adding chorizo to a dish, I know it's going to have dynamic flavors, big seasoning, a lovely color. Because like, we're going out and buying that chorizo, and maybe not the market we normally shop safe, at. Like that's a, that, yeah. well, they're going to love that. Yeah. Yep, and yep. even if you do it bad, I like it when if you do a recipe badly and it's still great. That's good vibes. Yep. So um, if you look through my books, there's, a, you know, if, if you pick like a, I don't know, um, if you, an award-winning like posh book that's great, like I can pick a few of mine out that will go like toe-to-toe mm-hmm. and like you can have, have, they can have a little ruck, right? That's fine. Like, so I've done those books, but in these books, which are solution books, yeah, a lot of what I have to do is really compromise with com- common sense um, and try and, look at the problems yeah that we're uh, facing at the grocery store and in the yeah. uk you sell the cookbooks at the grocery store yeah which is not our culture yeah in the states which is yeah great. well when i did the veg book um which is about like three four year, uh, years ago mm-hmm. i did really well actually and um which was contrary i was pitching that for eight years yeah and, they weren't like, um, like it smashed it, it yeah. smashed it because people want to know how to make veggies taste good yeah, yeah. um and uh, we sold that book in the veg department yeah. And they sold more veg and more books. So why it's a don't win-win. we in the States, like working in publishing, I always wonder why can't we get slotted in the veg department and actually do the same thing? What What's the deal? I don't know. Yeah. Like, like, again, like sometimes logical things don't work. Like, I know. So, so for instance, we've just done a study recently that, that proves that if you give free school lunches to, to, to vulnerable and poor families, that it doesn't cost the state money because over a 10-year period it makes billions mm. makes in what uh, way through productivity and how that a productivity of that child and how they they don't follow you know how yeah. they well they do at school yeah um and they're from really good proof points so the idea 
we're living in a time where it's very, you know, whether it's the UK or here, like whether it's the politics, elections, everything's in a kind of three, four year cycle. Uh, and so everything's about now. Like, what can I do now that makes me look good? What, what can I do now that I'm famous for? Um, I think there's a lot of ego in politics. Uh, <laughs> you and, think? And, and, yeah. I don't, well, things like yeah. child health and stuff like that, for me, feel like it should be cross party and like absolutely 25 agree. year plan. And, absolutely but that's too agree. logical. So that ain't going to happen. Too logical. Um, um let me ask you, is there a cuisine, an origin that you really want to learn more about that you feel that right now you're, it's on your mind? Uh, Peruvian. I desperately want to go yeah. to Peru. The crossover uh, from Japanese uh, cuisine too. But yeah, also, the silk route, you know, the yeah. way that the kind of spices and trade, the fact that they're... But Peruvian, the, like, I mean, the, the native culture of Peru. Yeah, yeah, in all of its color, the fact that they've got kind of like ninja farming happening at you know, nearly every sort of terraced altitude. Yeah. Um, and they can grow such a myriad of types of foods. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the biggest fishermen in the world. So their capacity to do interesting things with fish. Yeah. And obviously we know ceviche, but um, like it, the list is, I mean, it's one of the most ancient foods. So I'm kind of sick of reading about it and yeah. listening about it. Like I need to. You've not been to I Peru. Need, no, no, no. I need to get yeah. there. I need to get there. And um and uh, I just need to go rogue and um, just get there. Do you ever I'm travel desperate. solo? Do you ever get to do that? No, not really. Not just, really. That's, and that's the struggle. You know, I've, I've you got have five like, kids, right? Five kids and, and, and 150 direct staff. Yep. So, you know, um, yep. my time's quite well managed within yeah. a, an inch of its life. And, and I'm <laughs> happy to do that. And I love what I do. Sure. And, and we, we orchestrate a lot. Of, like We produce our own television. So we get to sort of get excited about you know the stories yeah. the casting families and um, the dishes what lenses we use on a camera to tell mm-hmm. a story you know playing with new technologies to get you know drones or like like cameras mm-hmm. that are inside things like, like we we love telling stories um how can i show you something caramelizing better than anyone else you know you're uh, very hands-on uh, with the production you, you... oh my god yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like we fight for it I was the first person to use, like, um, the latest sort of uh, digital cameras on British broadcast. I was the first person to use mobile phone on TV, first person yep. to use, like, Canon 5Ds on TV. When, when we said, Our last chat, we uh, and I'll link to in the show notes that episode, we talk about some of the innovation in 97 when you first jumped yeah. on the scene. I mean, it, it looked different. Yeah, man. I mean, like, even when we had crap cameras, <laughs> I would use, like, 1920s slide yeah. camera uh, and 35 mil lenses, prime lenses with black socks, and we would we would achieve depth of field mm-hmm. through tilt and shift rather than the kind of spherical shape of a lens. You know, so you say, well, why am I talking about this? But the reason I care about this is I'm trying to get you to see what I see, yeah, and the way the human eye works, and the way we knock things out of focus, and and if if you go right up to something and stare at it and see it getting crispy, yeah. I want you to see that. And so much of the technology that we've grown up with can't do that. No, so, I mean, naked. I mean, with your original show, I think it was the way with single camera work, the way the, the energy. I mean, you honed a, a visual identity that was copied, yeah. copied and copied and copied. Yeah, that was more documentary. Yeah. And then as we kind of got better and I felt the freedom, because also I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew what I wanted. Yeah. There's a lot of protocol in TV making. Mm-hmm. Oh, you should do it this way. And and, and and that attitude, by the way, is everything that we've talked about today, which is 
don't like change, should yeah. do this, should do that. And and whether you like him or hate him, it doesn't matter. But like Elon Musk is like, no, this is what you should like. I'm going to try that and like just mixes things up. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, in my own little way, like with food cookery. Well, you and Bourdain, I, I think, and, and Chef's Table and Stephen Satterfield's show, High in the Hog, I think these are all shows that pioneered, but yours goes back the longest. And I mean, what gets you excited about food television? I mean, it, everything. I love to hear it's that. Be, it's beautiful. It's, it is beautiful. It's, it's because I think there's um, technically there's more and more interesting things coming out that I can get. I, I can immerse you in the food. Yeah. I think where we could go with AI uh, is really interesting. So instead of you watching me cook, if you think about it, like so, my if you think about it, like my job is to look at you down the barrel like be convincing be emotional like be remotely entertaining like teach you something accurately and cook the wrong way around just so you can see it (laughs) but actually where we're going with sort of like you know ai and sort of 360 filming um you could be over my shoulder yeah you can crouch down and look under my arm and see exactly how i'm slicing that and what my fingers are doing to not get cut off you know so i think there's more to come and then um, the idea of making – so the idea of guiding and instructing and immersively inspiring the audience yeah. anywhere in the world. I mean, getting those goggles to actually feel okay on the on the head and yeah. actually be tw- $20 and not $2,000, yeah. that's the future of yeah. food education, right? And I agree then, with you. And, AR and just, is good. And then just intelligent – tagging in all of its ways like yeah like if you're into something like you can just touch a button or rub your finger over it and then you can kind of you can kind of go like from like factual entertainment into like you tap that and mm-hmm. you can go super geeky into sort of like what is that ingredient and like how can you get it and where is it growing like the the sort of encyclopedic depth yeah so i i, I love there's a lot more to come i think and then at the same time just people were so charming yeah, like good people. When you get to meet them, you get the you get the real honor as a food producer. I get this as an editor and writer to go meet people. You get to be the yeah. the actual. Uh, you get to meet great people, right? Yeah, and also the the real Jamie. I'm not saying you know you don't get a real Jamie, but like the real Jamie's really curious and and like and and I'm nerdy and geeky and I could talk about mm-hmm. like like proper. <laughs> potentially boring no you're great exciting things i love it but um but 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 a lot of my job is to build stepping stones for people around the world that are really nervous to cook yeah and that means that instead of me sort of massaging my own ego around like the perfectly authentic whatever that means Mm -hmm. version of this i need to reflect what i know you can get in your supermarket yeah so if you think about things like one pound pasta which is not authentic but but you can't deny it's not delicious. You no. can't deny that there's one thing to wash up. You can't deny that it's actually like you're focused on one thing, and and actually, you know. So I, I I think like I'm trying to come up with solutions. You know, you look at things like well, people buy chicken every week. They're actually getting bored of chicken. Yeah. So like right, cool. Like how can I get one ingredient? Like if say miso. Yeah. Imagine Zatar. My my, my mum and dad it. or your mum and dad. Like what the hell's that? And it's yeah. like well, dude, they're in every supermarket now. Like yeah. You can use it in loads of really cool ways. Miso butter, soy sauce, let's go. I mean, that's perfect. Like, that's like on any any chicken, umami. Jamie, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or budget, meaning you have all the money in the world. So no no deadline. This book can be like 10 years. What would that book be? I think um, it would be The Spice of Life. And okay, it, and it would be the story of all these spices that we 
um, sort of take for granted and um, where they come from, what flowers they come from, what pods they come from, what communities they come from, and all their kind of fascination, what they do to the local environment, soil, microclimates, like nutrition, like um, medicinally, you know, like spices are by weight the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. Um, their, hist- their their capacity to be in the area of like food is medicine, which is a sort of debatable area. Yes, but but their capacity to be well debated is really good, and um, the constituent parts of these things and how they can mm-hmm. help your body flourish. What's one chapter or one section? What what's one spice that you'd want to? Vanilla, I'd have to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm just I would do anything to see that. Yeah. Hanging. Yeah. It's such a powerful thing. And um, I've had the the joy of having really good fresh vanilla pods, mm-hmm. like tacky, sticky, marmite sort of. You don't even know what marmite is. You do. You do. Uh, I'm you familiar, know yeah. Yeah. Um, sort of. Um, uh, but to see that from the, the motherland, whether it's an island or, you know. Yeah. So I, I think. Vietnam or Madagascar or wherever. Yeah. Know, I, India, I South India. The story of spices is really interesting. It is. And. I guess it's really a story about currency as well because it was traded and swapped and and I mean y- your country is, it was based on the spice trade. I mean British people are so funny it's like kind of well that's just not British and it's like <laughs> dude like we just come out of Christmas like everything about Christmas is not British. Yeah. Turkey don't come that's South America nothing to do with Britain. Yeah. Uh, you know like mold wine it's like not we, well the the wine wasn't ours the, none of those spices are ours. All the spices and and a lot of the fruits and some of those cakes and desserts but it it was about something flash, something exciting, mm-hmm. something new, something from another place. That was far, brought far back away. on those boats. Yeah. 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 So I'd love to do, but of course, recipes to go with it. Of course, the cooking um, side of it. But I, one of the things I love, and I don't know if you share this, but um, I love making a bit of a thing about my spice rack. Mm. Like, to me, it's like, it just means like opportunity and hope. And like, you can pick up like... A chicken leg or like a fillet of fish or yeah. a, a butternut squash. like, And you go, right, where are we going? Like, are we going to say the same old thing or are we going to go on a holiday? Yeah, so yeah. I love the idea that those spices just – and even – It's cool. Pestle and mortar, like the oldest gadget in the world, yep. like two rocks. Yeah, it really like, is. Like it's the coolest, most contemporary gadget going, man. Yeah. Like ev- Every house that cooks should have one. And, like, you take a few of those spices, smash it up, yep. season it up, rub it over something. It's I fun to it. bang shit together, too. Let's get real. 100%. Yeah. Jamie Oliver, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you very much. I love seeing your face in the studio. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah, well, I've had your book for a while. I, I haven't grammed it because we get these like these airmails from from the factory and like because I'm work here and I just have had it forever and I've been like I want to talk about it but I can't. Cause, I know. You know what I mean? It's really good. <laughs> Thank you. I want to talk about it too, but I also <laughs> feel mindful of the like talking about a thing before it's real for too long and then like by the time it actually happens, you're like, didn't that come out like eight years ago? I know it, be, it feels that way, but I, I have to just acknowledge um, I'm in the heat of a deadline myself, but book deadline, but you have done three books in five and a half years. 
Yes. That's really impressive. Thank you. Yeah, it was supposed to be less than that. Um, <laughs> really? But yeah, but I, uh. I deferred one year on this book because, you know, pandemic. Yeah. Did you, have you heard we were I, in a pandemic? I, I've heard. <laughs> I've heard that it's, uh, I've heard many things. Now, yeah. that's a, a big, it's a pace because I think you, each of your books is unique with art direction, with, with actual recipe development. Um, but you, did you feel like you were in a constant hamster wheel with this, with these books? Um, I did for the first two. And that's why I needed that second year. Because yeah. when you think about a calendar year and you say, oh, I, I come out with a book every two years, that feels like a lot of time between books. But the the realization that it's not two years off of making a book. It's, okay. you know, it takes about a year and a half mm-hmm. all told, you know, to conceive of the recipes, to test them, to cook them, to shoot them, to write about them, to edit them. To lay out that like it's it's mm-hmm. many steps in the process, so it you're not really ever getting that much time off. Like no. as my current schedule stands now, if if I continue on the schedule that I'm at, I would have to start shooting the next book towards the end of this year. Yeah, and and like that's shooting with a lot of the manuscript done. Which... Correct. Well, I I shoot and then I write. Oh, really? Let's get into that. So that's interesting, and I want to talk about the art direction in Sweet Enough because. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a slight change from your first two books. I yeah. love it. And you definitely went to Coney Island and hung out with old dudes. I definitely did do that. Yeah, <laughs> that was a highlight for sure. Um, yeah, this w- this book was a little different, I think, because it's a dessert book. And to say nothing of the fact that I don't necessarily think of myself as a person into desserts or, like, known for them, it was my first job. I, it's how I got my start. I was a pastry chef. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of, like, not what I became— known for, and it's not really what I pursued long-term in my career. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you know, what is it about desserts? Why? What makes my dessert book different? Like when there's so—I was really honestly in, intimidated to make one because mm-hmm. there's so many people that make dessert books that are real bona fide, like pastry chefs and and much better bakers than me. Um, and I was just like, well, where do I sit in that category? And I kind of realized I just had to like lean into the, the me of it all, and that's mm-hmm. just that— Desserts are silly. They're superfluous. They're loud. They're they're messy. They're like they exist only to make people happy. And so I I really wanted the images to reflect that. So you shoot first, though. So you mm-hmm. actually are making them without like a strict recipe, and then you're like the dishes, the the recipes. But you're also uh, taking them into like locations because like clearly you're you're like shooting in very specific places. Yeah, we kind of went everywhere with this book. I well, I I write the recipes first. And then I shoot, and then I write sort of the head notes and the the now it makes you know sense. fascia uh, in between. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> fascia connected tissue. Yeah, Love. so I I do start with recipes, um, especially with something like baking. With the savory stuff, I don't always. Sometimes yeah. I'm winging it. <laughs> Sometimes it's just like you have a few ingredients and you have a camera and you're just going. Yeah. Yeah, and you're like, this feels good. This feels right. I feel that's a great way to write a book. Yeah, I do too. Um, was like the third book dessert sweets book like require like why desserts for number three? My like- old editor basically required it. She wanted it to be the second book. Yeah. Um. After I think of like the success of the cookies, which was in dining in my first yeah, book. Right. She was like, you know, actually a lot of my favorite recipes of yours happen to be desserts. Like, would you ever consider a dessert book? And I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of like an immediate no. And then the immediate no got negotiated to third book. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, I think, because for me, I really wanted to establish myself as like, you know, sort of a what's for dinner type of definitely, resource. Definitely. And that was really important to me. And I think that you can 
deviate from that after you've set the stage as that being the thing. And I think to do for book two would have felt too neither here nor there. Right. Like, who is she? What does she do? Yeah. What's her thing? And I think now people are sort of like, oh, she's a lady who likes pasta and, like, does dinner stuff. But, like, she also makes a book of desserts. And if she can do desserts, then so can I, maybe. I'm mm-hmm. thinking. Well, Sweet like, Enough certainly nails the, the ethic because it certainly doesn't say, like, overtly, like, how to make great desserts or, like, how like how to. <laughs> how to make passable desserts. Yeah, right. I mean, it feels like you're in it, but you're not fully in it in the best Allison Roman way. Yeah. To refer to you in the third person, which I think is weird, but I just. Well, you know. We're, we're let's go. We're in a room with microphones. We are. What, what, what <laughs> else is weird? But you follow me on that? I don't yeah. want it to come off as, like, um, like, like negative. I, I think, no, it's true. I would totally self-described that way as well. I think that like to come out and acknowledge like this isn't my thing. It used to be professionally, so I sort of know how to do it, but it wasn't like where my heart was necessarily, mm-hmm. which is why I deferred. But once I started writing the book and once I started doing it, I was like, damn, this is fun. This feels looser. It feels freer. It feels like more joyful because desserts don't need to exist to sustain us. Yeah. And I write about this in the book, but like there's no reason that anyone needs to own this book, and I won't pretend that you do, versus a book full of recipes that you're using to sort of feed your family, your yeah. friends, yourself. And like, well, it's helpful to have recipes, especially if you don't have the instinct to mm-hmm. just kind of riff every day. And inspiration is helpful. But like dessert doesn't – it's not a necessity. Yeah. And it feels good, and it felt good to make something where you're like – I, you got to loosen up. Like, mm-hmm. we got to we gotta stop taking these things so seriously. Like, they're just for fun. Like, literally just for fun. Dinner is not just for fun. No. Dinner is something that we need. It's, it's definitely foundational in, like, living. Yeah. You know, dinner. But yeah. dessert, you can definitely live without it. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I certainly can. I'm not a person who eats dessert often. It's, like, not something that I crave. I go salty over sweet yeah. whenever given the opportunity. But I think that challenge for someone like me to make dessert delicious enough where I'm like, fuck, that's so good. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I definitely learned that from the people that I learned from right on. working in restaurants. Uh, we'll talk about your your love of pies and tarts over cakes, cookies, and other things. You have a real hierarchy here. I, we will get to that. Mm-hmm. I want to, But I want to first talk about some of your media stuff because it's interesting and cool. Travel show. I've seen you in Italy shooting things in, on social, mm-hmm. but there isn't like an announced show. What's what's going on with that? You're like, but where is it? What happened? I mean, honestly, I was like going into it. You do it. We work yeah. with ZPZ. I, I love those guys. And like, it's going to be a good show. Like I feel in my body. So where is it? What's I can tell you that it is a good show because I've <laughs> seen it. I've seen the first season. We shot a second season, which is even Wait, better really? than the first. You shot a first season before anything came out? Oh, yeah. Oh, I love because that. Because we had a premiere date and all that. And then mm. CNN... Um, <laughs> decided that they were going to stop airing their original series. I heard. Which is, yeah, public knowledge, but they basically, like, shut it all down. Yeah. And it was, like, right before we were wrapping the second season. I had, like, one more shoot to do. Oh, man. We were in the middle of a promo shoot. I had to be, like... Coming soon to CNN. And I was and then, like, like, coming soon to all. Yeah, exactly. I was like in hair, full hair and makeup, uh-huh. like in an outfit. It was like a total spectacle. And like, it was like we got like word on like a walkie talkie, like, uh, we need to talk. To oh, you. no. And we need Allison in the tent. Yeah. Well, because it wasn't anyone's theirs decision, you know, and everyone was really heartbroken. And it, it was like, you know, I guess if you're going to get your show pulled, it's like, 
well, it's like me and Stanley Tucci are in the same boat. So yeah. <laughs> I, there was nothing really we could do. So we're we're in the process of finding it a new home, um, and hopefully we'll get to be seen. So off the HBO, uh, CNN kind of platform. Yeah, thing. Warner Warner Media. Warner. I would say is not going to be the the one. The one. The date. Yeah. Did you do anything on the original uh, premiere date that you announced? Like, did you have like a fake premiere? The date you said there was a date. Oh, already. Thank, it was like the weekend of Thanksgiving. So. And then it like came and went and like that was like a really emotional day for me because I, I had, had all my friends like I was going to like have my friends over. We we're going to do this thing. I know. It just also was this, you know, obviously emotionally devastating experience to yeah. pour yourself into something and work so hard on it for so many months. Like it, was, it consumed my 2022. Like I prioritized it. It's like mm-hmm. it has been my dream for so long to do something like that. And um then to have it get so close and then not happen, you're like, and this is not the first time that it has almost happened and then not mm-hmm. happened. And so I'm like, showbiz, baby. Yeah, it like, is I'm showbiz. trying so hard to have a good attitude showbiz. about it. But it, it is, it, it, it sucks. It fucking sucks. Yeah. And, and, but it will, it will be aired somewhere. It must. I it mean, must be aired. I mean, if it's going to be on, <laughs> um, on Vimeo. Yeah, I'm gonna put it into 90 second clips and start a TikTok finally. Oh, or or like relaunch Quibi and do it. Oh in, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. No, that worked I, well. I, I I hope it airs ZPZ plus Allison Roman. It's cool. Like I think it's it'll be great. A good, yeah, and I think like we did something really interesting Definitely. and different. Sure. And I think that was sort of like the the sort of glue that bind. The glue that binded us together was that we all just sort of collectively decided ZPZ and myself like. If we were going to do this, we wanted to do it on our own terms yeah. in a new and different way. We wanted to sort of like make something that felt unclassifiable and like not repeatable. Yeah. And I think that we did that. Yeah. And I think it's really good. And I think people mm-hmm. are going to love it if once they see it. Once they see it. Um, <laughs> no, we'll talk. We'll get you back when, when it. Yeah. Is. Yeah. Um, but I also want to talk about your newsletter. Mm-hmm. It, it's like your media savvy is is definitely strong. Like you're really good at this stuff. And I think. Thanks. You're welcome. And I've been a paid subscriber for a minute. I didn't even ask for a freebie. I just Thank went. Thank you. Yeah, right on. You know, <laughs> I do that. You know, it's the way that you, you got to do it. But it is true. The jo- joking aside, um, how did you get your newsletter to actually uh, work? Because I feel like we were in the middle of a pandemic. You put some stuff out in the world, but then it really grabbed people. And I, I think in, you should read it. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's a great read. You're an, an amazing writer. But how do you think about your media newsletter business? Um, well, thank you. I... I don't know that I did think about it as a business. It certainly has grown to be one. But for me, I think that I I, I was sort of like, you know, in the pandemic, having the only option appeared before me, and that was to work for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I had already had a, quote, step stack. Um, <laughs> I think it's so funny. People are like, I have a sub stack. I'm like, well, you have a newsletter. Yeah, sub stack exactly. is the platform. It's so weird. Um, but I had a, quote, sub stack. Yeah from like 2017 that I just signed up for so I could have a place to like send out mm-hmm. um, information for like my book tour and stuff. And I kind of never ended up using it. I got a column at the Times and, you know, it was sort of like, well, I don't need a Substack if I have a column at a newspaper, you know, yeah. it was sort of felt repetitive. And then when I didn't have a column at the newspaper anymore, I sort of was like, well, I don't really feel like I'm going to work for anyone else again. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to like pitch myself as a column writer. <laughs> right. And I realized that what would it look like if I were writing a column really just for myself? Without like uh, the New York Times style. But like, because yeah. I feel like you were able to really break any form. And we had a lot of us hadn't really known you 
as that kind of writer mm-hmm. when you started really riffing and getting into not just like the cool home cooking technique and, and tips, but like personal life stuff. Yeah. And I always wanted to. Nice. And I felt like I really couldn't do that when you're working for Bon Appetit or The New York Times or whatever. Like you're sort of working on behalf of that vertical or that yeah. brand or that magazine or newspaper. And yeah, I, I realized that I had never really just said, well, what does it look like when it's just me? And like, yeah. is that interesting to people? And what's funny about the newsletter, to your point, is people were like, I didn't know you could write. That's funny. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's like, so I wrote, fucked up. <laughs> I wrote like 400 words every other week in the newspaper. Like, and they're like, I think people just were like, oh, shallot pasta lady or whatever. Yeah. And like, you know, as you know, people, you're, I love it when people read the head notes and the essays in a cookbook. You wrote I know like three that... stories for taste, man. Yeah. Back in the early days. That's right. You know, you're great. You got a link like... to those too. Yeah, I should I'll link to those. <laughs> those were those were fun, like 2017 stories that we worked on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I it's funny because with the newsletter, like the words and the story really are front and center. Yeah. And you get a lot of types of people that are like, it's the like shut up and cook people, the like, sure. why just give me the recipe people, the I don't need to hear about this, people. The people that really have responded so positively and encouragingly about, like, Mm -hmm. being honest and vulnerable. And when you don't work for someone else, you're allowed to really be yourself, for better or for worse, I think. Do you want to do a collection of essays as, like, published? I do. That's great because I feel that's natural, like a natural progression. Yeah. And I think that that's—yeah, absolutely. I I absolutely do. I have that in me. I, I'm excited to do that one day. Yeah, and work one with day. like a really good editor to push me to be a better writer. Because I think I'm I'm good at the voice and I'm good at being honest. Yeah. And I just, I know that I'm not, like I'm not formally trained as a writer. My grammar is shit. I, Dude, I, nobody. I need a lot of help. Um, but I want someone to push me to be yeah. like, you can be a great writer. Respect and that, that might take 20 years, but I want hey, to Hey, respect that. Now let's talk about home movie. Shout out to David Cho. Let's talk about. <laughs> What's up, David Cho? Yeah, right. Um, home movies is is like a different style of show than I think you're talking about the CNN yes. or former CNN show. For sure. I love it. And and let me ask you this. Does that concept grow? Do you get more frequency as after you do the book release? Because I just feel like home movies is just starting. Like it's just starting. Yeah. Like I really love it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We, we started in uh, 2021, like okay. early 2021. And I, I think, yeah, like early 2021. Mm. Um, and... It's grown and we're so we have so much fun with it. Yeah. And I think when you're on a platform like YouTube, you sort of have to make the choice. Like, am I going to play the game? Am I like going for like YouTube <laughs> su- superstardom? So true. Or am I just going to like do things on my own terms, even if they're not the most popular? Mm-hmm. And I think that with everything in my career, I'm like really at a place where I'm like, I just don't know that I have it what it takes emotionally or or in any way to like quote unquote, be the most popular in any of these like social genres, like TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and mm-hmm. et cetera. Like it just takes so much effort and money and time. Yeah. And like a savviness that I don't possess or or you there, there's no savvy. It's like like the whole algorithm. Yeah. It's, that like, changes. it's like qual qual quantity, not quality. Yeah, totally. And it will change the rules all the time. Totally. And I I think that once you realize that you're not actually in control. Yeah. No. I was like, well, I'm just going to we're just going to make stuff that we like and think is fun and yeah. then get advertisers to help us pay for yeah, it no doubt. directly yeah. rather than rely on YouTube revenue. I mean, the jump cut style, it's like definitely woven with the Internet and like online culture. It mm-hmm. has a real zeitgeist vibe to it, I feel. But it also is rooted in real cooking. Yeah. Which I like. That's why I like you and many others do is that you actually root everything in real cooking and not fake cooking or performative cooking. Yeah. And that can feel like a 
Sisyphean task mm-hmm. to like get people to give a shit about real cooking when for the <laughs> totally. most part, yeah, you know, when <laughs> for the most part people are satisfied with consuming content that is just like yeah. visually appealing and like fast and quippy and like nice to look at. And mm-hmm. I'm I'm so like hell bent on making sure that I feel like I get people to really learn and to like give them the tools to do things on their own mm-hmm. without me that um I think that also makes me a bad candidate for TikTok. Yeah, I mean TikTok is definitely not for you. You can learn on TikTok though. People do. I oh. like people learn a lot of stuff there. I'm not saying that you don't. I just think that for me like a lot of the like the, the speed in which you have to show a recipe. I'm like, "Well, I have more to say." That's <laughs> I have why more tips. The YouTube format is good, but I, I fully agree with you. And I we, we're not shading on TikTok because I think that is for food in particular. Yeah, writing like eight hundred words about like broccoli roasting techniques not really ever going to fly ever. I've written that story. I'm like in a like soul searching moment with like writing about <laughs> cooking, how to cook. I That's don't tough. think people read it anymore. No, and it's. I, I, it literally is a dance like no one's watching. Yeah. Like, that's sort of my attitude now for everything. I'm like, well, yep. do I like it? Yeah, is yeah. this satisfying to me? And then you find your audience and then, like, that keeps you afloat. And mm-hmm. I think that if you're for everyone, it's probably not very good. It's very well said. Back to desserts. I want to ask you, do I need patience to make desserts? Because I have no patience personally. And I just don't make desserts. And I think it's that's the problem. Unfortunately, I think that you do if you're like really going to get into it but i am not a patient person i think we could all use a little more patience generally but yes i make plenty of things yeah i make plenty of things that like in the book there's like full sections where it's like crush some raspberries with sugar and like spoon it into sour cream and put it in a cute cup and like that can be dessert and i think kind of reframing your idea of like what dessert quote unquote is mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to be a performance it can be like a more it can be a gesture and I don't go into the, like buy candy or like serve a chocolate bar, like because I think we all know that you can do that. But there are like sort of the step above that things where it's like roasting bananas with brown sugar in the oven and like calling it a day. And, it's like, the and, perfect and, and moment. It seems like it's like obvious things, but like you know, treating your fruit like you would a vegetable is no different. And like, so I feel like you can sort of make the leap where you're like, I don't bake and I don't do desserts. It's like, well, do you roast carrots with olive oil in the uh, in a hot oven? Well, yeah. you can roast a banana with sugar in a hot oven. Love that. And like, it's going to be great. <laughs> I feel like you were episode two of the Taste Podcast, your interview with Anna Hiesel at Books Are Magic. Oh, wow. The launch, you were number two. We're at like 195 right now. Oh and I believe you did say for dessert, it is the chocolate bar, which I fully love that. Yeah. And I think that that is sort of the undercurrent of what the book is trying to say. It's like, these are all great recipes, and, like, if you want one really awesome chocolate sheet cake recipe that you don't need a mixer for, there's a great one in there. And mm-hmm. if, if you're like, that's the only baking I'll ever do, great. Yeah. Let's talk about classic versus new. You write, there are a lot of reasons to attempt a classic dessert, but historically I've found it emotionally easier to double down on making something same but different. Mm-hmm. What do you mean there? Um, In that I don't love to compete with people's existing uh, perceptions, fantasies, ideas of what something should be. I love that. And if you give somebody a recipe for a insert classic dessert here, you know, um, 
I do it once in the book. I do it as there's like a pineapple upside down cake. Yeah. That like, but I feel like that can be different. So I'm like, oh. It's kind of, I mean, that's canonical in like a more pop culture way. Exactly. Like there's not like the idea, but like. You could po- flip it and do the other way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the right that's, side. Exactly. You can do anything. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, you're like, oh, a chocolate chip cookie. Yeah. Like the amount of opinions about mm. that, like I could make one and defend it, but I would rather do something same but different. Enter chocolate chunk shortbread. Yeah. Where it's like you can't say whether or not it's a good chocolate chip cookie because it's not a chocolate chip cookie. It's, it's just not. But it has the things that make that thing good. There's a picture and an essay of a double crust fruit pie in the book, but there's no recipe for one. And that's for two reasons. One, because I've published double crust fruit pie recipes a million times already. Yeah. And two, because there are a lot of great bakers out there that have wonderful pie recipes. Yeah. And like I'm sort of just like, you can't really compete with your vision and idea of what that's going to end up being like, because it's kind of always going to like have a mind of its own, be mm-hmm. messy, be this, be that. And I think I do actually give like vague measurements for that. Yeah, but yeah. I think that for me, I'd rather give you something different that hits you in the same way, like in the pleasure points of like, oh, this reminds me of a blah, blah, blah. Like there's like a chocolate sour cream pound cake that reminds me of a Costco muffin. Yeah. And oh God, I love those. I'm not, I wasn't going to make a chocolate muffin because to me, I'm like, well, could I ever make a better muffin than a chocolate muffin from Costco? Yeah. I don't think that I could. But what I could do is make a really delicious, like rich, like densely textured sour cream pound cake yeah. with chocolate that reminds me of that muffin. Yeah, absolutely. Not not to promote Costco, but the, the cheesecake. <laughs> I'll talk Costco all day. The pumpkin cheesecake at Thanksgiving is like my favorite dessert ever. They, like they can do no wrong. They're it's a, an icon of an establishment. It, it really is, and not sponsored. Maybe it will in the future. But <laughs> let's speaking of pie, I, I you really do make a strong point about how pies and tarts are like your favorite category. Mm-hmm. Is that is that true? Did I read that right? Yeah, I think because they have to me like a the best ratio of texture. I'm a I'm a real I'm a real crunch girl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I love definitely crunchy and crispy and crumbly. Like textured things are fantastic, but. What's more is that oftentimes like the crust of a pie or a galette or a tart is not sweet, right? Like Mm -hmm. I have a recipe for a pie crust in there, which I've published a few times because I just can't improve upon it. Um, It's good. Like the copy and paste when you're in like manuscript mode and you like like recipe 67 of like 120 and you can just go copy paste for one. Yeah. I was like, I'll take it. Let's go. But I also was like, could I make this better? And I was like, I can't. Um, (laughs) And that that's, you know, I use it for savory things and for sweet things. So like to me on balance, like Uh a barely sweetened like custard tart filled in like a a, pr- a press in crust or a pie crust that's like salty and buttery and like just sweet enough. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Yeah, um, it's rolling off the table. It really it, it so is. much. It um, just happens. It's just like to me a well balanced, tasty little treat. It doesn't feel like decadent or overly sweet or cloying or like too much. Like it just yeah. is like, I don't know, you're like, ooh, that hits. Like in the same mm. way that like I really enjoy like. I don't know. I'm I'm just like a salty, crunchy yeah. person. What's the least favorite category then? There's got to be a least favorite category. Um. Well, it, it's not least favorite. It's that. Okay. So interestingly, you have it. It's yeah. There. I it's, see your face. Interestingly enough, I because now as I'm saying these words, I'm like, well, it would stand a reason that I would love cookies, but I don't because they're too dry. Yeah. It so doesn't. They don't. They don't ever please me the way that other things please me. I love fruit. I love pie crust. I love custard. I love pudding. And a cookie is always like, even if it's a great cookie, if it's great, it's like almost too sweet. And if it's okay, it's like too dry. It's like eating yeah. a disc of sand. What about semi-baked? What about when it's like really like quarter baked in the middle? 
cookie. No. No. Bake, it's like if it's quarter baked, like yeah. you shouldn't be making a recipe that allows you to bake it fully and have it still be fudgy. Uh, I like the like the math here. It, it I makes mean, sense, yeah. But I also, that was sort of like, there are a lot of amazing cookie bakers in the world and yeah. I'm just not one of them. And I think it's because I don't love cookies that much. Yeah, I, I like it. Um, they can tell. The cookie can tell. The cookie can tell. Speaking of salt, kosher salt, Diamond Crystal is your hive. Oh, yeah. So tell me why. I mean, I feel like Morton's doesn't get enough love. I like Diamond Crystal. I personally, because we're in the East Coast, you can't find Morton's. I love Morton's as a name. I think it's the branding so good. is chic. Uh, but Great I, blue. It's the <laughs> yeah, best branding. It's fantastic. Uh, the girl with the umbrella, I love her. Yeah. We are her. Is it raining salt or, or rain? I think that it is raining rain, yeah. but <laughs> it's evocative of salt. And it's she's protecting her salt piles. She's like worked in the salt mines. <laughs> Child She's labor. Because it was the 1920s. Like, look at her style of well, clothing. Well, she looks great. <laughs> okay. Um, where is she now? We must find her. Where, yeah. Um, yeah. It just feels better in the hand. Like, Morton's is too coarse. Yeah. It's it's too many too many crystals per pinch, and diamond. If you pick it up, you notice and put it in your palm, which I'm like pantomiming right now. Weirdly, I like it. <laughs> I like it. This I is have. a video free. Um, uh, I know. Podcast. I like speak as if you know. Always, always be on camera. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> put it in your hand, yeah. and it has larger flakes and a little bit more crushed salt. So it's like feels like way just more evenly distributed. Um, I would rather you use Morton's than table salt. Hundred percent, and it's it's actually a really smart recipe uh, development or, or recipe execution note because you they're not the same. No, they're not the same. And if you use a te- teaspoon of Morton's and a teaspoon of Diamond Crystal, are not the same. And yeah, and that's that's tough. Should be a t-shirt because it, it it's like forgotten all the time yeah. that like they're not they people think they're the same but they're like my thing is too salty and like oh shit you yeah. use Morton and that's I do also offer that disclaimer at the beginning of yeah. the book like if Love you're it. sensitive to salt you might find some of these too salty but <laughs> I also know some people that. Immediately upon uh, looking at a, I I interviewed Brooks Headley once in mm-hmm. like 2014 or something mm-hmm. for a Bon Appetit story, and I remember at, like we were talking about like home cook recipes and like bakery stuff, and he's like, if I read a book a recipe in a home cookbook, I om- I always immediately double the salt. Yeah, 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 totally. And if you were to do that in my book, you would have a hellish time. It would be way too salty. <laughs> so yours is totally I feel like up. I nailed. Yeah, I think so. And but I give that same advice. For anyone cooking anything of mine or anyone, like if you trust me once, tr- please try to trust me a second time. Yeah. And it's like just cook through it or bake through it once and then make any adjustments you want. Definitely. So more sugar, less sugar, more salt, less salt, no spice. Use this fruit instead of that. Mm-hmm. Like do it as written. Yeah, well, that's why we like do the work. Don't like. Yeah, yeah. I, I, exactly. And don't I think it. that for people to look at a recipe and be like, oh, well, that's never going to work. Or I, that uh-uh. feels like way too much this or that or the other. Just trust because it's also a perspective, and I, chances are, have defended the the flag that is already being raised. Yeah. Speaking of Brooks, this is like a funny theme on our show. When the fuck is he going to open Odessa? Oh, my God. Come on, guy. Open. He's funny. I've been Wouldn't it be him. funny if it just never did and it was just like a – it's like an <laughs> NFT. It like lives on like in this ethereal space and no one can have it. Well, it lives know. on an Instagram. It's like I only know. on Instagram. It's killing me. It's an Instagram. I wonder response. how many people just stop by. I should. Should we I, just stop by? <laughs> I mean, I've thought I've emailed him a few. He's going to be on the show soon, but it's funny. It's going to be great. It's going to be great, but so also great. so annoying because <laughs> it's going to be impossible to get in, and you're going to run at everyone you know, and it's going to be like a whole thing. I know, and like that's so grumpy. Oh my god, listen to me. I mean, it's part about restaurant culture in New York right now. It's it's just really hard to book and get into places. You just simply can't. It's you simply can't. Allison, we ask all cookbook authors 
to talk about the very last recipe in the book because no one ever asks you about that last recipe. No one ever asks you. And your last recipe on page 293 is a salty vanilla frosting. It shares a bed with tangy chocolate frosting, which sounds great too. Mm. So let's talk about that. Let's give it like a little bit of love, that last recipe. Well, I trick you because it appears earlier in the book. So you have to acknowledge its presence. But I, didn't even, but I didn't even realize that, I, that that was happening. But that's smart. I'm forcing you to look at the last recipe in the book before you even know it's the last recipe. And then you're going to like flip the other way and you're going to meet mm-hmm. in the middle where you were reading before. Yeah. To uh-huh. me, that, that frosting is like my answer to the like Betty Crocker, Duncan Hines, Pillsbury in a can. It's like <laughs> yes. deliciously vanilla-y. It's like salty, but not in a way that you're like, is that savory? Like it just is salty. Um because most processed foods are very salty. We yeah. just don't realize it. And so I know I said that like I'm uncovering a deep secret. <laughs> like everyone knows that. But like it does to me like it is saltier than the average like yeah. home frosting. It's not a buttercream. It's not a Swiss meringue. It's to me like a beautiful, extremely easy to make all purpose white vanilla-y mm-hmm. frosting that goes really well with the cold carrot cake or the chocolate sheet cake or the yellow sheet cake. Um, like any sort of like. I've done it like on um, – I made like big – a sheet pan of shortcake, yeah. which is a recipe also in the book. And instead of doing like a cobbler or like, you know, any sort of like shortcake whipped cream thing, I'd used frosting because that's what I had. Mm-hmm. And it was like a bit overkill because like the textures are a little dense, but God, it was so it was, good. Um, it was unbelievable. Let's get the tangy chocolate frosting one line. What's the tang part of it? Sour cream. Yeah. So it's like the sour cream chocolate. Mm -hmm. Why does that work so well? I mean, I've never really asked anyone, like, why do we love that so much? I think we love it because sour cream is giving you acidity while also giving you fattiness. And chocolate is actually very acidic. If you eat a piece of chocolate on its own, it does the same sort of like back end of your mouth, like salivation that that sour items do. Like chocolate is high in acidity. And I remember when I was a pastry chef, we (laughs) used to taste chocolates based on their like acidity versus Mm. their roastiness versus their, you know, and you taste it and the notes look like coffee or wine tasting. Like, oh, this is like a low acid, high, you know, coffee flavored chocolate. And like, this is a low, you know, high acid, almost tastes like berries or whatever. And like, you know, it's difficult to account for what chocolate people are going to use, but I think sour cream goes well with any chocolate because yeah. it's going to augment the fat if you're, say, using something like a 60% versus a 72%, which is going to have less fat. Mm-hmm. And it's going to augment the acidity mm-hmm. if you're using something that's maybe on the flatter, more roasty side. Got it. Is there a brand that you go to for baking, specifically chocolate brand? I like Guitard. I'm a Valrona girl professionally, but See, in the home, I'm a Guitard. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so there's, there's two there's two sides of the coin. Yeah. But uh, also, the sorry, a plug real quick is that the box of Guitard, forgive me if I'm saying that wrong, um, <laughs> the bars that they sell, yeah. it's like three beautifully wrapped thin bars, and it's... Um, three two-ounce bars, so six ounces of chocolate, mm-hmm. which is exactly the amount of chocolate you need for the chocolate chunk shortbread cookie. So I remember when I was making a lot of those at the time, like for promo purposes, yeah. I, I would just buy those, and I knew that I had— Visually, right, you knew. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is the right amount of chocolate. I don't have to have I a like scale it. to measure anything. I like it. I like it. Okay, a few more questions. Thank you for your time. Oh, yeah. Now, you're heading out on the road. There's been a few probably cancellations or delays because of the pandemic, but mm-hmm. I think folks listening to the show will like to know where you're heading— and where are you looking forward to, like, going for the first time? Do you have any spots that you haven't been? Oh, my gosh. I am going a few places. I am – I'm announcing this on, I think, the 28th, so this okay. should be out. So yeah. it, it'll be common knowledge by then. But, yeah, I'm doing, like, a 
a small-ish U.S. tour I'm doing. Um, New York, D.C., San Francisco, cool. Seattle, Portland, L.A., Chicago. Great cities. cities. Yeah. Choices Thank made. You. Yeah. Choices made. I know. We really, I really wanted to go to Minneapolis, but we couldn't fit it in in the schedule. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the reason that that feels so tight is because the week after I'm going to the UK, I'm going to London. Okay. I'm going to Amsterdam. Interesting. And then I come back from that trip, have like a week off. If anyone tries to do anything with me during that week, I'll tell yeah. them I'm unavailable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, Rest and relaxation. I'm sleeping. Um, and then I'm going to Australia. Oh, wow. Like Oprah style, I'm going to Australia. Yeah, I'm doing three that. cities in Australia. I'm doing Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. Great cities. Long flight to Brisbane. Yeah. Long flight. That's I'll have to confirm this before we air it, but I, I'm I'm doing an event at the Sydney Opera House. That's cool. How major? I feel like you're made for that. You're built I, for that. I, I might be. I don't know. It's often easier to talk to that many people than it is to one person. Um, but I love going on tour. I yeah. love doing book events. Um, this tour is the biggest one I've done. Mm-hmm. I'm doing like full theaters um, cool. rather than bookstores, which I've never done before. Um, I think the first two books I was also doing a lot more like cooking and pop-ups and dinners and yeah. things like that. And while great, it also ran me into the ground yeah. and I wasn't really able to talk to that many people. Yeah. And I think I love, I love to talk. Um, <laughs> you love people. I, I love people. And people I love think, you. Yeah. And I think at this point being able to talk to a person, you know, a moderator and, you know, effectively do what we're doing right here, but on a bigger scale, it feels like. People get to ask questions in the audience, Mm -hmm. and it feels really intimate and personal, and it's like a moment in a conversation that lasts only for that night, and it doesn't—I don't know. It just, like, injects humanity back into the process. I love live events. I'm definitely willing to be booked for Portland. Just saying I'm there. Oh, great. I'll fly out. I'm there. Perfect. Um, But I think you're right, and I love that you're kind of getting out of the the cooking and just, like, letting it be—letting yourself be you and, and, like, talk to people and be— open with the moderator, right? And I feel like that's oh, definitely yeah. going to be uh, the, the 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 style of event that your fans and your friends will like. Yeah, and I think that beyond just, like, the cooking technique or baking information, there's just, like, so much that goes into a career or these books or the process and just, like, current state of, quote, media. Yeah, right. Um, or anything. Like, I just think there's so much to dive into in, like, a in a genuine way. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely link to your website, which will have those tour dates. Yes. Definitely book, buy the book. Uh, Books are magic. We'll be selling your book. Shout out to Emma. <gasps> Mike. Emma, I think yeah. we I, we sold so many books. My publisher, my publisher, yeah. LOL, we're you're, in the building right now. We're in the building. My publisher, too, <laughs> um, same publisher, yeah. Clarkson Potter. Um, They said that I had, like, the indie pre-orders were out of control. Yeah. Like, more so than usual, I think, like, in comparison to an Amazon or Barnes & Noble, which cool. I—, I I love Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I know you do. Um, we all do. But I just think it's really great that the people buying my book are like yeah. also it's important to them to buy from an independent bookstore. Yeah. Is there any more to awesome. shout out that I know you just said books are magic off the top of your head? Are there um, any independent stores that you can pre-order your book at? Yeah. Books and books. and books. Yeah. Um, Skylight. Love that. Books. Um, books and Books is doing signed pre-orders for stock and Skylight will be I'm partnering with for the event. Very cool. Um. Omnivore in San Francisco, of course. Oh, Celia, Celia we shout. Love Celia. We love Celia. Gotta love Celia. Um, Book Larder. Yeah. In Seattle, Seattle right? Powell's yeah. in Portland. Sixth and I in D.C. Um, and I, f- I forget the name of the Chicago one. It doesn't matter. Booksellers listening to this show, respect Allison for knowing all these bookstores. I love independent bookstores. It, I do, too. We're huge fans of reading books from independent bookstores yeah. and buying books from them. It's too. really important. And I saw somebody the other day say something about a person who's, like, plugging 
their own book to for someone else to pre-order. And it's like, I pre-order a lot. And I yeah. think that it, it buys me good pre-order karma. But I also just know that it is important to like the publisher and the author because with Dining In, the pre-order numbers were not very strong. And then we ran out of copies twice. So yeah. we can't run out, people. We, gotta, we <laughs> have to make sure the, they're printing get it Get your up. reservation. Yeah. Do you agree with the New York Mag assessment that you don't have to read your friend's books? Um, it depends on how many friends you have and what <laughs> books they're writing. I have friends that write books where I'm like, I love you. I'm never going to read that. You're you just know? being but transparent. That's just, well, that's just like if I'm not interested in the topic or it's like, you know, it doesn't change how I feel about you as a friend. And they know that I have. Do you know how many friends I have that have never even cracked? Yeah. Uh, Alice and Roman production. They've definitely bought it. Though. They're a great friend, though. Yeah, they're a great friend. They've yeah. Oh, yeah. I think you can buy it without reading it. <laughs> I agree. That's that's the see. That's the compromise. You have to buy your friend's book. Yeah. It's a small luxury. It's not a lot of dough. No, I want to fill my shelves and my apartment with books my friends have written, things my friends have made, clothes yeah. my friends have made. Like I Absolutely. feel like supporting people in your life is super important, and you can do that financially without. Or even just, like, visibly in your space yeah. and, like, talking about it without being like, yeah, I read that book. <laughs> Love it. Elson, a few more questions. We have to ask everyone who comes in from New York, what are – give me three restaurants right now. We just talked about, like, booking is impossible, but just you have to give three spots, please. Three spots. That you really like right now. That I really like right now. Restaurants. This is, like, the story of my life. I know. Exactly. People it's, are always hitting you up. That's terrible. People are going to eat me. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> fine. Um Right now, like, I'm just thinking about where I've been recently and sure. where I continue to want to go back to. Great. Um, frankly, for a special occasion, I took my mother for her birthday, her 70th, La Rock. Yeah. Can't be beat for a special occasion. Yeah. They make you feel good. The food is excellent. It's a restaurant for adults by adults. Yeah. It's fun. Rock center. Energetic. Feels very New York. Definitely. Um, it's, it's not an everyday situation. That said— for expensive restaurants, my tip is always to eat at the bar, have one drink and a snack, just mm -hmm. experience the energy, and then, mm -hmm. you know, decide if, when you want to spend the money. Yeah, there or get somebody time. to take you. Yeah, or get somebody to take meeting. you. Um, Woo's Wonton. Yeah, Woo's is good. I love it. It's yeah. BYO. You can have an absolute blast. Um, I spend many holidays there. Yeah. Um, I've done Valentine's there with friends, Christmas Eve with friends, birthdays, um, just a random Tuesday. Like, I, I think yeah. that... It's just fun. It, it the energy and I love it. Are you half duck, whole duck? Is it? Um, I'm a half duck. Yeah, but it also depends on who I'm with if they've had it or not. Yeah, but I'm like I do the crab. I do like the house special crab. Always good there. Um, the black um black bean clams with XO. Mm -hmm. Um, recently we ordered the like tiny anchovy with garlic chives, which is actually on the on the wall. There's oh, a picture cool. of it. Cool, cool. Shockingly delicious. It's tiny anchovies. I would imagine they're 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 fresh anchovies. Yes. Right? Yeah. So they're they don't taste fishy at all. Exactly. They're not they're not briny, they're not salted, they're not cured, they're not pickled. They're like yeah. barely a fish. <laughs> um it's like little crispy steaks. Mostly chive. Yeah, mostly chive, but really fantastic. I love it. Um and the third restaurant, gosh. I don't know. I can't. I can't get in anywhere. I, the it's other tough. day, my friends and I went to four places. We were turned away from everyone. Yeah, it's challenging. Those impromptu hangs in New York are are long gone. I know. Yeah, but like I go to Servos a lot because good place. They just consistently kill it. The vibe is also great. Yeah, also hard to get into. Always I love Keen's. Keen's is like yeah, forever my number one. Ribeye or mutton? Oh, ribeye. Thank you. I I had a conversation with a friend. The mutton is not good. It's fine. It's, it's good. It's sorry. good to be there for it's lunch. It's fine. I hate to if say if you're it's not there good. with enough people, I like a mutton for the table. Mutton for the table. Just like throw the extra mutton on for the table. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. I'm a porterhouse for two for oh, up yeah. to four people Porter. because even three people of one porterhouse is too much meat. P too much meat. Too much meat. The it, the the portions at a steakhouse are yeah. so massive. It gets you in a in a mood. I yeah. think. Thank you for those. I have to shout out Moonburger. 
up in oh, Kingston. Love Moonburger. You, I, I've been many times just like driving yeah. through Kingston on the way to the highway. I, it's a vegan hamburger and vegan shake restaurant. Well, it's we we talk about it like it's just a really great burger restaurant. I should, we do yes. we do use dairy. We use American cheese. Oh, I'm and sorry. Cooper Sharp I and totally milk for that the, up. No, no, it's okay. I always assumed it was vegan, but no, then it's but American that's cheese okay if it. you do because there are plenty of things for vegans. Okay. Like our buns are vegan. Yeah. Um, the sauce, uh, the sauce is vegan. Um, like we try to like make it so that it's easily veganized. Yeah. But like if you want a cheeseburger, you can get a cheeseburger. But yeah, we use all impossible meat. Uh, my friend Jeremy started it mm-hmm. last year, and he asked me and some other friends to be on the board of advisors. Cool. And he assembled like a really cool team of people that have worked in magazines and other restaurants. My friend Anoop, my friend Emil, my friend Danielle, and like yeah. we you know, cool. are cheering him on and giving him advice whenever he needs it. But he's doing an amazing job. The team is great. I was just there yesterday actually doing some like tasting oh, for nice. new stuff because they're launching in New Paltz later Oh, they have a year. second location. I was wondering if that was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, they got the lock. Where in New Paltz? I forget. It's not yeah. a drive-thru. It's going to be a sit-down. It's going to be a sit-down? Yeah. Great town, New Paltz. Yeah. But we were just like, how do we make like not eating animal protein the the norm and like not like making sure people didn't miss it? Yeah. But then having moments where you can have a little bit of animal protein if you're cool. Yeah, like milk and like, cheese. Like, milk like and American cheese. cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Which my favorite, great. Yeah, my favorite animal protein. Good for the burger. Yeah. Um, how's upstate life? Are you opening something upstate up there? Upstate life is great. Yeah. I So I bought a property in 2021. Um, I, I bought it in 2020, closed in 2021. And it was sort of like in the, you know, obviously in the pandemic. And I was just like, what is life? What is my job? What is my career? Yeah, yeah. And really felt like I wanted to have a – I'd been looking at property like mm. pre-pandemic and then the pandemic happened and I got like way priced out because everybody panicked, bought. Um, but this was sort of a special little spot in the area that I have been going to for a number of years. I actually wrote all of my books in the area. Oh, right on. Yeah. So I've been I've been like cool. have like a special place in my heart um, but finally decided to like put a ring on it as it were. <laughs> and yeah, I'm going to open a, a pantry store in the bottom – which is like I love that my dream. I re- I've like forever just wanted to own a grocery store, and it's like not a specialty store. My goal is to have the most like basic shit possible. Like I wanted to. I'm so obsessed with what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like pragmatism and yeah, like utilitarianism. Ut- yeah, like utility. I just love utility so much. Yeah, and I really got fatigued with this like onslaught of you know, store in any city in the country mm-hmm. and abroad where you're like walking and you're like, what are these things? And well, like, the New York Meg Shoppy Shop I know. was really good. I, it really killed. Um, shout out, Emily. Um, God, two references to New York Meg. Wow. That's like they, not- they're, they really are leading the convo, as it were. They are. They're um, good. They are good. Um, but yeah, like a place that you can go and buy everything you need to make for dinner. And I kind of just wanted it to be like a big version of my own pantry mm-hmm. and use it as a way to like highlight, you know, or may, or rather make accessible a lot of the farms in the area because a lot of the places sell their meat out of like chest freezers and it's sort of an honor system. But if you're visiting in the area, Airbnb for the weekend, you don't really know where to go. You yeah. don't know like what road to drive down to like get the good chicken. Mm-hmm. But I can buy directly from those farms. I have chest freezers to store the meat in and you can buy it at that store. I love that. I can't wait to visit. It seems yeah. like the kind of thing that up, upstate is – is needing is not like the cute this or that, but like a real utilitarian grocery store, but yeah. also with a little bit of a point of view. Yeah, because like Shoprite have personality. Because like Shoprite. Eh. Well, that's the thing. Is like I love Price Chopper, and I'll go yeah. all the time because I have to. But I think if I could go somewhere closer, that would be great. Definitely. And if I could go somewhere that had a bit more of a community energy and like, 
you know, a, a bit more uh, point of view and like a bit more pleasant of an experience than like a big box store. So what's inspiring you right now? Food. Grocery crea- stores. Yeah, no, right. um, seriously. Shopping. Like, we're talking about like book cookbooks or food creators or people on the fringes. I just wanted to ask you generally um, if you had a few names, people you like. Yeah, I, you know, I have been sort of like head down blinders on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in food because I feel, me personally, I get very overwhelmed with the things that other people do. And I I start second guessing myself and I start, it's like, honestly, not good for my mental health. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just being like, is that a thing that I should be like, is that the thing? Like it it becomes very tough. And I know a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah. Um, So it's hard to keep your eyes open and stay inspired in your own category when you feel like it's just like a competition to like do more, more, more and like flashier and punchier and this, that, and the other. So honestly, I've just been trying to like read books. Love that. Um, Yeah, I'm reading How to Do Nothing. It's not going well. (laughs) Um, Great thing to do when you're like planning a book tour, wrapping a book, doing it. Well, that's the thing is like I'm also just trying to like instead of being like how do other people do X, I – traditionally have really tried to like quiet that question and be like how would I want to do it if Mm -hmm. all if nothing else mattered and like figure out the answer to that first before like looking around and and asking those questions I really appreciate the honest answer like for real that's like a great answer (laughs) no for real you didn't have to like stunt and say I have this person that person you like real that it's definitely I love what other people do of course and I I just also know that like at the period the, the place that I'm in right now um it feels like there's too much Repetition. Okay. And I think that in order to like make sure that I'm not contributing too heavily to that, I'm like doing something that feels genuine to myself and not reactionary to what someone else is doing. Like that. Allison, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, mm-hmm. or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, what would that book be? Well, I know that if I had all day, I'd take all day, you know? I adage. know. So I'm like, well, if you were like, you have a book, it's due in five years, guess what? I would do that book in the last six months of five <laughs> years from now. Like, I wouldn't, like, take five years to do it. Um, so you I do also, no book. It'd be nothing. Well, I think, like, I don't know. I, I saw that question you had, like, posited earlier, and I, I was thinking about it because I don't think you need a huge budget to make a great book. I love the way yeah. that you do books and, like, the travel aspect. Oh, and, like, you kind of, like, learn as you're going and, like, are able to sort of do a hybrid of reporting and documenting. And that's really cool. I think that one day to do something like that would be really awesome where like the onus isn't on me necessarily to like write the recipes, but to sort of like study the way that other people cook in their home throughout the world and just like have the budget to travel and like see how things are done. Because, well, yeah, I guess to answer your previous question, the (laughs) the people I'm most inspired by is people old people that cook at home. Mm-hmm. And when traveling and doing this show, I met so many people and farmers and cooks and um, just regular people that like are excellent home cooks. And those are always the people that I learned the most from. Oh, I love the answer. Peacock, Travel Channel, CBS. <laughs> it's definitely a cooking show. And like with a travel bent, and but some episodes there's no travel at all. So. Oh, so it's in the studio, stand in No, store. no studio. I filmed it upstate. Oh, so I it's in a home, but like, like Jamie Oliver style. Yeah, there's travel components, though. So it's like we do sort of like leave the kitchen to go learn about stuff. So it's like. Where is this going to land? It has, it has so many places it can land. I know. It's really it's special. A, it's a special show. Good and, and I think very, very informative. And I learned so much filming it. Yeah. Like 
it was kind of like I got to ask every question I've had about like an ingredient or a process. Mm-hmm. And like we then got to answer the question. It's, it's, gonna be, it's so dope. I cannot wait to watch it. I can't wait for you to watch it either. Al- Allison Roman, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 